Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 23, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. I think when I just said, hi, listeners, that came through our sound equipment into the Becky Nader's headphones, and it almost was like putting paddles on her, jolting her awake. (laughs) She's fully alive now because I said hi, listeners, at a volume that was probably a little bit too loud. But This is also, I think, the first time we've ever recorded in the morning. We oh, always yeah. do it in the afternoon. Yeah, we're, we're, so like <laughs> we got a fresh, fresh coffee running fresh through the veins. Coffee. <laughs> we're good to this go. This might be a more lively episode. <laughs> Who knows? Well, if you're joining us for the first time, my name is Rick. I'm editor of the Jesus Centered Bible, author of the Jesus Centered Life, and uh, sitting to my left is Becky Hodges. We like to call her the Becky Nader. Hello. Because she innates things all the time. You'll see what I mean as you listen. She, she just adds. That spice that if you if it wasn't there, you'd say, oh, this meal is gross. But isn't that right? That's what innating does. She's, that's why she's a Beckinator. She like adds cayenne pepper. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, you are like cayenne pepper. So this month, we're focusing on discipline, which is not the greatest marketing campaign in the history of the world. No, to you say might we're gonna... think I'm ready to turn this off now. <laughs> <laughs> but... Becky, the Becky Nader, in our first episode on discipline, uh, which was episode 22, did promise that we're going to take a playful approach to this. When Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light and my—let me see. my Take my <laughs> yoke upon you, my burden is light. What else, what else is the part of that quote? It's too early. Blankness. So listeners, I'm sure you know immediately what that quote is. But the effect Google of— it. Yeah, the effect of what Jesus was saying is— uh, take my yoke upon you is something a rabbi says to a Talmud, uh, and a Talmud is a, a pupil who has excelled enough to be able to even pursue a rabbi and attach themselves to that rabbi, and so they have to convince the rabbi that they're worth attaching to. So when the rabbi is convinced and has chosen a, a Talmud to come and live in his home and follow his every move and eat his meals with him— he says to that Talmud, take my yoke upon you, which means immerse yourself in my life. So when Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, he was saying, immerse yourself in my, li- in my life, because it's light. It's not heavy. It's light. It's a joy. So this is how we're going to approach discipline this month in our month of podcasts on it, that we're going to take Jesus at his word, that his discipline is light and that we can take even a playful approach to discipline. So I wrote a book called The Jesus-Centered Life. It came out about a year and a half ago. Uh, Many of you, if you're regular listeners to the podcast, you already know this and you've read the book. And it's it's an upending book in a lot of ways. It's it's kind of the, the summation of my life's journey in this pursuit of Jesus and all of the things that I've learned about Uh, what it means to abide in Jesus on an everyday basis, so that he's not compartmentalized into your sort of religious compartments and away from your everyday compartments, that how can you have intimacy with Jesus in an everyday way? So the book is about what 
what that looks like, who Jesus really is, and what he's asking for in a relationship. And then uh, the whole back two-thirds of it is um, how to live this life in very practical ways. It's kind of a menu of opportunity. It's not a should. It's not a big, here's the things you should be doing. It's just like if you walk into a restaurant and you look at a menu and say, oh, I like that. That's what the back two-thirds of the book is about. And along the way, I've had lots of conversations, obviously, with people who have read the book or think they understand what I'm trying to say, <laughs> based on very little knowledge sometimes. But I've had these conversations, and the chief critique of the book that I've heard either via email or when I'm talking in person to somebody is that it appears that I'm saying in various spots that because our calling is to abide in Jesus, like a branch abides in the vine— and then we get the life of that vine flowing up through our branch, producing fruit, that I'm suggesting that there's no effort involved for us as followers of Jesus, that all we have to do is attach ourselves to Jesus, and here comes the fruit, uh, here comes the, the gravy train through us. And so I've said before that I don't think that's a very careful reading of the book, because there's plenty of things that we do in our relationship with Jesus, but where is that line? So when we talk about our life with Jesus and our discipline in the, in the Christian life, well, how much of that is our effort, and how much of it is his effort? And is what I'm saying that there is really a negligible effort on our part, and it's pretty much all Jesus? Well, let me just say, that's not what I'm saying. Um, when I'm saying that effort, that effort is coming from a different place. So let's, let's explore that a little bit. We've picked out two places in Scripture that we, we would like, Becky and I would like to explore, and to tr- really address this division of effort, um, and to try to come to understand what, that, what this will look like for us on an everyday basis. So Becky is going to start off by focusing on James chapter 2. So if you happen to be uh, in a place, not in a car, but at not home— driving. Exactly. Don't open your Bible if you're driving, because even the Jesus-centered Bible will not save you from no. that head-on collision. So, But if you're at home and listening to this, uh, and you have a Bible nearby, you might want to open it up to James 2, because she's going to read a good chunk of this. And while she's reading, I'm going to take some notes, and then she and I will talk about this. If, if you've been in the Church for a while, you've grown up in the Church, uh, this is going to be a very familiar passage to you. You will have heard it uh, taught on many times in Church— but not quite the way we're going to unearth it uh, in just a minute. So take it away, Becky. Well, and as we promised, um, we wanted to make sure that this kind of idea of discipline was was playful. And um, if you haven't joined the Pigs, we'll tell you at the end of this episode how you can do that. But the Pigs is a group of people who have been listening and following us for a while, and they are in a private Facebook group where they interact with each other. And one of the things I love is we've been talking a lot about does Jesus laugh? Does he think we're funny? Does he joke around with us sometimes? Does, so, he, th- does he think he's funny? Does he think he's funny? <laughs> Is he sometimes funny? Um, so we're gonna t- we want to really take a playful angle, and we want to kind of imagine that in this role of discipline that. That Jesus is playful with us, that he is, he thinks that sometimes just like when your toddler or your kids are just not getting it, he's he's kind of laughing like, oh, it's so funny that they keep doing that same thing, that he's not angry with us. And so, you know, we're going to go through James chapter two, and I'm going to read this, but I want you to kind of th- picture a more playful Jesus as, I, as we're doing this. So I wanted to read the whole entire chapter, but it's quite long. 
Um, so I'm going to kind of summarize because I think it's important to know going into this part of James, what he was kind of unearthing and where he was coming from right before he he went into this particular passage. So he's he's actually, he's talking to them and he's talking specifically about, hey, you know, we treat people differently depending on who they are. So if somebody walks in and I'm totally summarizing and ad-libbing here um, in James. This is not the real, I'm, I'm adding things. But if, and we do this today. If someone walks in and they look a little different, we make assumptions about them, maybe they're poor or they smell bad or so we 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 treat them differently. And then the next thing happens, Rick Lawrence walks into the into your church and you're like, "Rick Lawrence, oh my gosh, you're the coolest person ever and will you come to my house and hang out with me?" I'm um, a, I'm uncomfortable being used as an example of the, of that. Oh, okay. But go ahead anyway. Yeah. Well, it could happen to you, Rick. <laughs> Um, so, um, so he's talking to them and he's saying, look, you know, you can't ignore the whole law. If you're not being merciful to other people, um, you know, you're in the same position as somebody who's committing adultery or committing murder. If you're ignoring one part of the law, you're ignoring the whole law. So that's kind of the, the whole point is he's coming in and he's talking about relationships. He's starting out and he's talking about relationships because his desire is for us to follow the law so that other people will follow the law so that everyone will be free. That's the motive in the heart behind what he's trying to say here. So now I'm going to read. Um, I'm starting in verse 14. So if you are following along and not driving, this is uh, James chapter 2, verse 14 is where I'm starting. So what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to the right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as scripture says, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are not shown to be right with God, but by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. All right. So, Rick. Wow. I know. It's a heavy passage. Yeah. How many times have we heard this, too? And the, well, the typical times. The typical way that this is taught, at least... Uh, in every different kind of church that I was in growing up, and I was in many different kinds, it was always taught some, somehow similarly, which was that uh, this tension between our faith and our actions means that if if you're going to prove your faith to be true, then you have to do things to make sure that that faith is proven true. So... Even the heading of that section in the Jesus-centered Bible here is called Faith Without Good Deeds is Dead. And so the way we typically translate that, because 
We are hardwired. Listen to this. We are hardwired to save ourselves. We are not hardwired to look to an outside uh, uh, entity to save ourselves. In fact, as Americans, this is bred in us. That pull yourself up, be your own bootstraps, and be self-sufficient. We've talked about this before in previous podcasts. Be your own person. Be your own source of strength. I mean, go down the list of self-help and motivational stuff, and it's all about accessing your own strength, and that that's the only way forward. And that really does play to our default setting. But that default setting is a broken setting. Our default setting is, is broken by sin, because sin separated us from God in relationship. That meant that in that separation, we only have ourselves to rely on. There's only two choices there when you're separated by sin in your relationship with God, to repent and turn back to him and, be, and become reattached to him in relationship, or to say, well, I'm separated in relationship, I'm just going to find my own strength. I'm going to do this on my own. Yeah, and you know, we when we were talking about this episode, one of the things that Rick and I kind of realized is that we don't often talk about, hey, um, if you've got some sin in your life, it's time to get that out. We kind of we kind of assume that you know you've already worked through that and we're we're like okay the next thing is to just keep reattaching ourselves but we wanted to kind of take some time for the first time and address that if you are in a pattern of sin and you are just keep going back to it you have something that you need to give up maybe you're not right with someone else maybe you need to ask forgiveness from a brother or a sister. We wanted to talk a little bit about that, and especially because there's been some people that we've been interacting with that maybe you need to go and ask for forgiveness. Maybe you need to get something out, out into the light with a trusted and safe person, um, and I want to emphasize that. I want to make sure that if you have something that you're dealing with that you don't go to someone who's going to pull you further into shame. Maybe you need to go seek out a counselor. We talked about you know, there's confession. Maybe there's somebody that you can trust. But sometimes before you can really reattach to Jesus, you've got to you've got to get what's in the dark out into the light. I listened to a, a, a little podcast on the Good Life Project. It's a short one, and, and it's called Closing the Books. And I thought it was a good example. He wasn't using it in a Christian way, so I don't want you to go listen to it and think that, oh, why would she recommend this? But I, I often see Jesus in things that even aren't um, and meant to be Christian. Um, but he was talking about how in accounting, we close the books every year. So you, and you might do this in your personal life or if you have, if you own a business, but you got to take time and you got to close the books and you take a look at things in your life and say, wow, we've been paying for this gym membership for a whole year and we've gone twice. Maybe we should stop paying for the gym membership or take this more seriously. And so you kind of reevaluate, Hey, what things are working and what things aren't working. So I wanted to to maybe encourage some of you, maybe you're struggling with some sin and you can't figure out how to reattach yourself to Jesus because you've got to get this right. Maybe you need to take out a piece of paper or a journal and you need to sit down and pray and ask Jesus to, to reveal some things in your life that you need to close the books on. Um, maybe it's a relationship that you need to make right with. Maybe it's something in your life that you need to get out. And we just want to encourage you to take that step, because it's an important one, to close the books on those things so that you can then be free and you can start attaching yourself to Jesus and getting out of your cage and living a free life. So we wanted to put that out there. 
Here's an image. Anything ima to add? Yeah, here's an image for what uh, Becky's talking about. So this week, uh, earlier this week, my daughter w went to Colorado State University for her uh, college orientation. It was a day and a half where you have to stay the night up there. And um, it was an interesting time. But <laughs> right before we left, so we're kind of scrambling around to try to get ready to go to this and get there on time. We had to be there really early. It took an hour and a half to get there. The, the night before this happened, my daughter goes down to the basement. She go, she's going to get something from the basement, and she yells out, Dad, Dad, there's water in the basement. I run down there, and there's water literally gurgling up through a drain in our basement. Mm. I'm like, you've got to be kidding oh, me. No. It's not coming from the rain or anything else. It's, it's coming from this drain. And so I spent the night trying to figure out if I could fix this because we couldn't obviously get somebody there that night. And then we're leaving early in the morning. Oh, no. So so I have to kind of manage this from afar and just wondering, no, now we've left the house. Is there going to be water coming in there? We couldn't take a shower. I did figure out that it was related to the drains and the shower drains coming down into the, the foundation of the house and then bubbling up. And so we couldn't take a shower. And it was a big problem. So, so here's the image. Uh, to, yesterday, we did have somebody come out, and they put their snake through the whole line out to the street, and they chewed through whatever was in there that was blocking it. And now um, water can flow down through the drains, out into the street sewer system. Everything's good. And what you're describing, Becky, is this hidden blockage. I had no idea where the blockage was. I had to have somebody come in and put their snake through it mm -hmm. to figure out where the blockage was and, and then release it so that water could start flowing again. And this is really what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I don't lack for compassion and longing to be connected to you, mm -hmm. but there are things in you that are blocking that, and you need the Roto-Rooter guy to come in, and his name is the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So when you say, stop, write down, what could be blocking right now? What is unfinished? What is left out there that I need to do something? What do I need to close the books on? That's really the Holy Spirit putting his rotor rooter inside yep. and chewing through that thing. Not you. Not you. That's right. You're 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 saying I know it's there and I want to get it I want to get it fixed. You're calling the plumber and then the plumber's going to do it. And the other the That's other good. thing I want to say is you might need to forgive yourself. Um, Rick and I were talking about this and, you know, many times we think, oh, I can never commit a sin against anybody except for one person. And that person is me. And maybe you are the mean person in your life. Maybe you're the mean girl or the mean guy. And you're, you're the one who is covering yourself in shame. You're the one who is not letting yourself be forgiven. You're not forgiving yourself. And maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe something happened. You did something. We all have, all of us have sinned. And maybe you need to forgive yourself so that you can be unblocked. Yeah, that's that's really good. And, and the, the truth is, the diagnostic for this is, if you are saying and doing things to yourself that you would never do to someone you love, then that is a huge red flag, because you are harming someone in your life. They just happen to be you. And the, the reluctance to receive grace for this is not humility, it's not uh, not thinking of yourself more highly than you should, it's not treating your sin lightly, it is a rejection of grace. Yep. It is a rejection of the greatest gift Jesus gives us, because we want to be self-sufficient, and as hard as this sounds, we our default setting is to be self-righteous, meaning we make everything right in our life, not Jesus. So we really don't like Jesus making something right in our life. We would rather 
balance the scales ourselves. Like I've, I, I, I can feel good about that bad thing I've done because now I did this and this and this to make it right. Yeah. What if Jesus makes it right? If we are not okay about accepting that grace, then we need to say, call it what it is, which is it's pride and self-righteousness. So it isn't humility, it's self-righteousness that keeps us from accepting grace. And I want to just loop back uh, finally here to the kind of the, the macro uh, picture that uh, Becky read in James 2. So I, I've said we normally interpret this uh, section that it's important for us to do things uh, in life to, to gain our rightness with God, but... Um, I think what he's actually saying, preceded by all of this talk about how we, if you treat others differently in a sinful way, you, you, you honor one above the other just because of how they look or their status in life, that's how this all—that's the lead-in to all of this, which is, hey, you might say that you, you treat everybody the same, but then in actuality, you don't treat everybody the same. So which is true? Is it the words or the actions? And what James is trying to say is, our actions actually show what is true inside of us. Mm. We've talked about before, we need to get what's inside outside. Well, how do we know what's inside there? Well, it has to be um, evaluated by what we do on the outside, because that's what we're showing. So, so how you treat others is a diagnostic for your faith. It doesn't, it, it's, not, it's not real, it's just words. If what you say is, I treat everyone the same, but then you don't, well, that's not real. And, and so when James is pointing this out, he's simply saying that thing that you say is real isn't real, and we, we know that it's not real because your actions don't support it. So he's not saying that you have to work up your faith by doing stuff. He's just saying if your actions don't match what your words say is true about inside of you, then that thing that you say is inside of you isn't really there. It's not really real. So let's just admit it. And once you admit it, then 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 the, the climb back up can start. Uh, the whole point of our, our life with Jesus is a, a word that my friend Tom Melton says all the time, congruence. It, are you congruent in your outside and inside lives? If you're not, this is simply what James is pointing out. Hey, that's a problem. It's a diagnostic red flag if you're not congruent in your life. It's, and it's useless if, it's, if that thing that you say is real isn't real, then then by definition, it's useless on the outside, because it's not really real. So James is urging us to live a real life, where our inside life is reflected by our outside life. Anything else to add there, Becky, before no, we go to... that's great. So we're going to go to, into John, um, John 15. Now, teen, we're going to read verses 1 through 17 in John 15. So again, if you're at home and have a Bible nearby, you might want to flip open to that. We're again using... The Jesus-Centered Bible, which is the New Living Translation, it's an excellent translation, I love it. We're going to pick up and uh, we're going to read a, a little portion of John 15, and uh, this is going to, again, sound familiar to you, especially for you podcast listeners, but there's some important stuff to uh, focus on. As, as I read, Becky's going to write some notes, and I, I want you to think about um, this whole idea of the partnership between our effort and Jesus' effort. That's what I want you to think about as I read this. So he says, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. So remain in me 
and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches, and those who remain in me, and I in them, will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. Now I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. So remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay one's life down for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now, you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Oh, think about the rabbi choosing the Talmud student again. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit, so the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. Now, embedded in this section is, some, is a statement that Jesus makes that would, out of context, make us think that this really is primarily about our effort, this whole relationship. So he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. So we're very used to if-then statements as well, human we, beings. We are drawn to that. We would be like, oh, circle that. that circle That's what that. I have to do. <laughs> okay, so I have to do that. I also don't want to assume that you know the Bible as well as we might, you know, accidentally assume. So some a lot of times when we hear the word fruit, some people are like, oh, that must be blessing. So like, if I do this, I'm going to get fruit and fruit is like money or like a new house <laughs> or a new car. So I want to clarify fruit is defined um, by Paul as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And self-control, okay? So self-control, we've talked about this before. We like to do self-control, but self-control is an outcome. It's a fruit. Oh, we got to stop right there. That, just that statement alone is like a radical upending of everything we ever thought was true. Self-control is not something we do. It's a fruit of our attachment. And we this is so fundamental to our way of thinking that it's hard to even get our minds around this that self-control is not primarily about my own strength no yeah it's 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 radical don't what? tell the self-help industry this <laughs> they'll be like we're out of business <laughs> cuz that's what they want to entice you into so i wanted to clarify that cuz what we're after is not blessings for ourselves in earthly forms we're after the fruits of the spirit, which is 
the, its outcome is, and, and I want to emphasize joy. I, I experience this all the time. Whenever I am attaching to Jesus and, and I'm just taking time with him and we are just, I'm in, I'm in the spirit. I feel like that's a really weird term, but I don't know how else to say it. I feel like this overwhelm, overwhelming, bubbling joy. And, and despite whatever, I could have been having the worst day ever and everything is falling apart in my life, but I can just be almost laughing with joy. Um, and I love that he emphasized that we were we would be overflowing with joy if when we are living our lives and, like this. And I really love the distinction you're making here about what the fruits are, because when we think about fruits or blessings in our life, we also, because our meter is broken by sin, we obviously go to things that we think will make us happy in life. Mm-hmm. Those When we say blessing, we often think of things. Anything that we want that we don't have right now. Right. And here's the, you know, I mean, here's the obvious truth that we all know, but we just forget repeatedly. Every one of those things, house, uh, vacation, um, Children. good income, whatever, they're all going to go away. They're not permanent. Those things are not permanent. Well, I guess children are permanent, but those things, Maybe. those things are not permanent. And the the idea that these fruits of the spirit that Paul is talking about, they become embedded in your identity, in who you are, and who you are is permanent. We are eternal beings, and so these fruits will last forever. the the uh, the The fake fruits, the fake blessings that we tend to think we want. They entirely don't last forever. They might not even last a year, mm-hmm. some of these things that we think will make us happy. So Paul is really being kind when he says, these are the fruits that will last forever, they're eternal, and they will be a source of life in your life forever. So what else would be written down there as I was reading, Becky? What else stuck out to you? Well, the first thing is that he, that Jesus is true. So we have a lot of lies that surround us in life um, that try to tell us lies about ourselves, and he's saying, pay attention. I'm, I am true. Right after that, he goes into, and he says, and by the way, you're not the gardener. Um, (laughs) This is a big, this is a big lie that we tell ourselves. I'm the gardener. I'm the one who has to, to do this. And you aren't, you aren't the gardener of your children. You're not the gardener of yourself. You're not the gardener of your friends. You are not the gardener of your pastor or the, the people that are around you. You're not the gardener of people who are not following Jesus either. So um, he's the gardener. Oh, we got, we got to stop right there. That was really good. The, the, who, who is the gardener is a great question. And again, all of these things he's saying really are poking at our own desire to be self-sufficient. We would like to be the gardener. Right. We'd like to be lots of things. We, we could produce what we wanted. <laughs> we, we, we love being our own God up until the point where that's not working in a huge and massive way. This is the point of disappointment, um, heartbreak, all of these um, uh, ridiculously painful things that we go through in life. One thing is true about every one of those things. Our self-sufficiency is exposed as bankrupt, and we, we become quickly desperate for a source of life outside of ourselves. And what Jesus is inviting us into is a life of sufficiency in Him that does not, is not leveraged by pain all the time. It's simply the life we choose. We choose dependence. We choose self-sufficiency. We've talked about before on the podcast, um, how do you know when you're relying on your own strength? And um, some of my micro-journalers that are, are journaling for my, this book I'm writing called Spiritual Grit, 
have I asked them, how do you know when when you're depending on your own strength and not the strength of Jesus? And they've said, in unison, stress and anxiety. I feel stress and anxiety. It's the opposite be- of joy. It's, it's it's because we sense that we are depending on our own strength, and it has a very limited bandwidth, and so we get stressed and anxious because the 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 resource we're depending on is very limited, and we're very aware of it in those situations. And so, it's a diagnostic to say, hey, you need to find ways to reattach to, if you want to say it this way, reabide in Jesus so that the life that he has can start flowing again. And Becky's already mentioned, uh, you know, a very a fantastic insight from James 2, that there might be a blockage that you need to get out of the way first. Um, but then, after that, how do you reconnect into that source of living water? What do you do? So this is where this uh, partnership between what Jesus does and what we do is so important. It says in here, I you didn't choose me, I chose you. And yes, but in the rabbi-Talmud relationship, the rabbi chooses the Talmud, and the Talmud comes to live with the rabbi and immerse himself or herself in the presence of his rabbi. This is a perfect picture of our life with Jesus. And But, the, but in that context, the rabbi is not running around serving the Talmud all the time and cooking the meals and uh, doing all the work in the house. Uh, it's a partnership. They're, they're working together to create a life together where the Talmud uh, gets immersed in the essence of, of his rabbi. So this idea of reattaching and abiding in him does ask us to, to make a movement towards him. He invites and we move. He invites and we move. And if we don't move, he will not force us to move. That's where our action comes in. That's where you might you could call it discipline. I prefer to call it pragmatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if I want a drink of water and I refuse to turn the sink on or expend the effort to turn the sink on and get a glass of water, and then I complain about being thirsty because the faucet won't turn on itself, well, that's ridiculous. He's, at, he's inviting us, drink my living water, but we have to do something to, to access that living water. It just makes pragmatic sense. So um, Becky and I came up with a, a list of a few things that we think uh, translate well to reattaching, reabiding, getting connected back into that living water. This is not a list of shoulds. For those of you who really love lists of shoulds, that's not what this is. This is just—I like to always refer to these kinds of things as playground equipment. So you show up at the playground and you see slides and jungle gyms and teeter-totters and all kinds of things. Any of these things you could play on if you wanted to, that's what we're going to do. We're going to throw out some things that you could play on if you wanted to. And before we do that, the last thing I want to emphasize from this um, scripture is—and this is actually—we've just recently discovered that this is actually something profound that people miss. He says, you are my friends— and oftentimes we believe that God is distant or that he is just there to sit and, you know, he's, he's, not, he's not our friend. And, and so when you talk to a friend, it's very different than you would talk to a person who's up in the sky who's distant. So as we read this list, I want you to put that filter on. He's your friend. So picture your favorite friend and then how would you interact with your favorite friend in this list? Uh, I absolutely love that you pointed that out, and also it's it's really good as a PS to this. He, he does say in here, you are my friends if you do what I command. Yeah. We, we talked about this before. 
well, it sounds like your friendship has a prerequisite. So I have to do what you command in order to be your friend. But think about what Jesus is really saying here. He's simply talking diagnostically. Like, uh, so um, I can say all I want that Becky and I are friends, but if I don't do the things that I promise to do with her, if I don't honor her, respect her, and treat her like a friend, then how can I say that she's really my friend? It goes back to what James is saying. You can say anything you want, but if your actions don't aren't congruent with what you say is true, then you're not what that thing is. And Jesus is saying, when he says, um, you are my friends if you do what I command, he's simply saying, if your outside actions match what your interior reality is, that you are my friend, then of course you're my friend. But if your outside actions are in contrary to your friendship with me, are you really my friend? And this is just pragmatics. So he calls us friends, and he calls us into this life, but we are not earning our right to be friends by simply being obedient to him. Our obedience is an indicator of the truth of our friendship of him. I hope that makes sense. So here are a few things that you can uh, play on in the playground. One of my favorites, I just talked with a group of our leaders for our group uh, mission trips this summer. We're about to launch work camps and Weeks of Hope all over North America this summer, and so there we have a hundred or so students and adult leaders who are going to be leading these camps all over the country soon this summer, and they all gather here in Loveland for a week and a half of training. And so I was speaking to them this morning, we were just talking about how much Jesus emphasized radical dependence on him over and over again, and how much we need that, especially when we're in the midst of challenging circumstances. So what does radical dependence mean, and how do you do that on your everyday life to reattach yourselves to Jesus? I mentioned in last week's podcast a very simple thing that I do that is my favorite way of reattaching to Jesus. When I become aware that I am stressed and anxious— that's a diagnostic. Oh, I'm in my own strength right now. That's why I feel so stressed. I pause, and I either, if I have the ability, I will sit down with a Bible to, to as a to to uh, as an invitation of my own. If I don't have the time, I'll just pause and say, Jesus, what do I need to hear from you right now? Simple, Jesus, what do I need to hear from you right now? I'm not telling him my complaints or my problems. I'm asking for him to diagnose me and say, Rick, here's what I think you need. That simple act reattaches me to him, and I can feel the stress and anxiety leak out of me when I do this, because now I'm reattached to my source of life. I'm not out there on my own, tossed to and fro by the waves. I'm now attached to the greatest source of power in the universe, and I can relax inside. It doesn't mean my circumstances change. I still have the same challenges, but my source of life and strength has changed. So that's one practice that I do that is an everyday radical dependence on him that does not have to be tied to forcing me into dependence because I'm in pain. I just choose it pragmatically when I feel the stress and anxiety come. I also, um, so if you're, um, you know, very busy and you have a lot of things that you're juggling, our tendency is to figure out our priorities on our own. So some things that I do when I look at my work schedule and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is too much. I don't even know where to start is I just stop and I say, okay, Jesus, I need you to prioritize this for me. And I let him show me. And then I, 
what it, exactly what it is. And, and what that does is I'm continually saying, I'm going to let you decide the priorities and I'm not going to rely on my own strength. And again, all I'm doing is just giving in. I'm just saying, I, I know that I can't do all of this and I know that I can only do what you want me to get done. So show me what that is. And then I let the rest of it go. I, I'm learning to do that. That's a very hard thing. I'm a very performance-driven person. And so I'm learning to just say, well, I didn't get the rest of it done, but I got done what Jesus showed me I needed to get done. It's good. It's kind of related to our second thing about taking the first step. And so that, uh, if, you were, if you listened to episode 22, last week's podcast, we talked about discipline being like training wheels on a bike. You put them on the bike so that you can kind of learn to ride the bike, but at some point you want to take those training wheels off, meaning we don't want to live our passionate love relationship with Jesus through the filter of, I'm being disciplined about it, I'm being disciplined about it. No relationship is enjoyable where one person in the partnership is is only doing the things they're doing because they're being disciplined about it. We want something richer, deeper, uh, more passionate than that. So so taking the first step may mean, though, that you put some training wheels on for a while. So if there's a way that you would like, that you feel that you need to reconnect with Jesus, whether that's reading Scripture every day, or taking five minutes to pray, or um, getting out in nature to walk so that you have some quiet time to, to talk with Jesus or to listen to what Jesus has to say— if any of these things um, seem like disciplines to you that are hard to keep to start and then keep at, put training wheels on for a while. Say, I'm going to do this for a month. I'm going to do this for 30 days. If I can make it a month, that's a success, and if I, you know, if I don't keep doing it, that's okay. I'm going to do it for a month. I'm going to spend five, ten minutes in the morning reading from Scripture or simply sitting and asking Jesus, what do I need to hear today? I'm going to try this for a month and and see see what happens. After a month, um, if it's a, a a practice that has brought you joy and life and energy, it's likely to continue. It, it's likely that it that it's become something like a habit, and you can take the training wheels off and just go with your heart's nudge to do this whenever your heart wants to do it. Then then you're not living by the outside dictates of the discipline. You're living by your heart. Your heart wants to do it, so you do it. I'm going to make that a little easier. Let's say that you have 20 minutes every day where you're driving somewhere and you're alone in the That's car. Um, instead of having to find a dedicated time where, you know, you can, we're all very busy. What if you just said, every time I'm in the car for 20 minutes, I'm going to spend that time without the radio on, without any distractions, and I'm just going to listen and talk to Jesus during that time. I'm going to picture him sitting next to me like a friend in the car, and I'm just going to chat with him about whatever. I'm going to tell him funny stories about my day. I'm going to talk to him like a friend. Um, And it, it can become way more natural the more you practice that. On the subject of friends, we have a tendency to isolate ourselves when we're going through hard things. And so I, you know, I, I want to encourage you if you've been disconnecting from friendships that you just simply start by reconnecting with your friends, because if you have to get stuff in the light, those are the people usually that you need to get in the light with. And, and so if it has been a while, it can be harder to do that. And, you know, you get together every once in a while. And then when you're together, you just want it to be a fun time. So maybe you just need to get out of isolation for a while and you need to take some time spending time with friends. Um, and reconnecting those relationships again. 
This is really important, what Becky's saying right now, because in general, what we're talking about here is making sure that we get what's inside, outside, that this is the primary practice of reattaching or reabiding. So when she said, when you're traveling in your car, she's saying, uh, have this chat out loud. Why do you have it out loud? Um, not because you want to look insane to other people who are driving past you. I have no worries about this. <laughs> <laughs> but you say it out loud because when you say it out loud, it goes from the inside to the outside. This is very powerful to get it on the outside. So when you have this chat with Jesus, just try it one time. You will be amazed at the difference between keeping it inside and having kind of a silent interior conversation with Jesus and actually saying the stuff to him as if he was present because he is present. We just can't see him. So this inside-outside thing is super important, and Jesus emphasizes it over and over again. Another thing that's related to this, and could also work in your travel time, is reading or listening to stories and podcasts, Uh, whether it's through Audible, listening to a a book, or listening to a podcast like this one. And and we want to point you to something particular about these things. If you're aiming to become reattached and reabiding in Jesus, then pick stories, novels, podcasts that have that as its purpose. We're not saying limit yourself to that, but if in this whole aspect of reattaching yourself, listen to things that help guide and direct you toward that. And they don't have to be Christian or sermons. I, I want to emphasize that. I'm, I don't know why, but I am in a season of reading stories, real stories from World War II. Um, in various parts of Europe of people who survived the Holocaust. And I, I, to me, they're not taking a Christian bent. They're just telling their story. And there's so much to learn from that. Um, So maybe it's a, you know, I've also read stories of people who have gone through suffering. And um, I, I just, I think there's a great learning to just hear other people's stories and, and their honesty of just the struggles they're going through, you will identify and say, wow, I feel like I go through that too. And um, which, is, which is, by the way, the process of getting what's inside of you, outside of you. Yeah. When you relate or resonate with someone who's going through something and it helps give words to what you have inside, because sometimes we don't get outside what is inside because we don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. We, we can't put our finger on it. And then we listen to a story or hear somebody talk and we think... That's what it is. That gives words yeah. to it. That gets on the outside what was inside, and then Jesus can start to uh, play with that mm-hmm. in your life, to work with that in your life. There are people that, you know, just off the top of our heads, who uh, very much are focused on Jesus, centered around Jesus, and uh, very much explore in a frontal way this whole idea of reta- reattaching with Jesus. The whole Simply Jesus uh, group. Uh, led by our friend Carl Medeiros. Mm-hmm. You can go to uh, simplyjesusgathering.com. You can watch videos from the talks from the last three years. Yeah, it's it's a whole community of people who are bent on abiding in Jesus. So we encourage you to to connect with that, that not only that website, but the people who populate that website. Their focus in life is reattachment to Jesus. But when my wife and I often uh, will listen to Tim Keller online. Sometimes if we have the, a hunger to be reattached to Jesus as he really is. So Tim Keller is a pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, and he has a way of stripping away 
the the extraneous stuff and getting to the heart of the real Jesus. So, Conrad Gempf too is another one. To oh yeah, Conrad mention. is is he's in, a great storyteller. He's a he teaches in the school of theology at, at the London School of Theology. Uh, and Conrad Gempf, G E M P H. There you have it. Um, you can Google him. There's also John Eldridge, who's written a, quite a bit about the true heart of Jesus. Uh, uh, get any of his audible books and listen to those or read them. And John Ortberg wrote an incredible book called Who Is This Man? that is unlike any book about Jesus I've ever read. It will surprise you and upend you and uh, show you the context for why Jesus was such a uh, lightning kind of presence in the world. So John Ortberg's Who Is This Man? is another way to reconnect. But all of these are just ways to kind of guide and direct this reattachment um, if one of these things on the playground appeals to you more than the other, go after that one. Uh, we want you to know that we're for you. We're, we're fellow travelers here. Becky and I are in the same kind of life you are, the this, this similar kinds of challenges, similar brokenness, similar brokenheartedness in, the, in our own narratives. We're real people, just like you, who are simply trying to live an intimate life with Jesus on an everyday basis, and we want to be in a community of people who encourage one another to do that. And so much so that we started a group called The Pigs. Um, if you don't know why we called it The Pigs, then you haven't read Jesus-Centered Life, and you need to do that. <laughs> Go to Chapter 5. This will explain everything. But you can join The Pigs from the description in this podcast. Just click on the link. We have a private Facebook group, so you connect to all of these other p- pigs. In fact, we had 24 new pigs join this last week. Yay, One pigs. from New Zealand and one from Cape Town, South Africa. Does a pig in New Zealand go... Oink. <laughs> I don't know. I can't do a New Zealand oink. No, apparently. no accents. No. And these people are just so wonderful. They're sharing their hearts and their stories and their hurts and their pains and their prayers with one another. We also do funny laughing things right now. We're talking about what car Jesus would have driven, and everybody has different answers. A Volvo. Um, there's lots of opinions about this actually, <laughs> and they're funny. It's fun. It's playful. So join the group. We'd love to have you. Hey, gang, thanks for listening today. And and remember, you can find out more information about everything we talked about here today and in further detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com. Just find our podcast section. You're looking for Season 2, Episode 23. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from LifeTree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.